time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I am Chris Rosebro, your servant in Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, taking a look at the Christian landscape here in America and around the world, and asking the questions, is this what the Bible teaches Christianity is? Is this the message that we Christians are called to proclaim? Or is Christianity gone off the rails? Well, if you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, you may have been shocked by the things that you've heard. And I've got myself steeped in a huge controversy. Actually, it's not that big. But I've got a lot of bloggers upset at me. And, you know, being a blogger, I don't mind if bloggers are upset at me. You know, (laughs) people... I don't actually mind controversy. And the reason I don't is because sometimes I think that you got to get mad, you got to get in the game, you got to start thinking, you got to start debating, you got to start talking, you got to start hammering things out. And sometimes when people get upset, that's when they begin thinking. So, I'm not I'm not against thinking. I'm not against controversy. The question is, are we going to solve these problems by name-calling and saying, eh, <laughs> Chris has just got a lot of hubris. He's, he's, he's judgmental. Or are you going to roll up your sleeves and get in the Bible and say, all right, Chris has made a claim here regarding what pastors are supposed to be doing. It's either in the Bible or it's not. He's either full of smoke and, uh, and you know garbage or he's telling the truth. You figure it out. Well, we're going to go through the biblical verses today to uh, take a look at that stuff and add a little bit more context to the controversy. But uh, before we do, we're going to talk. <laughs> we got a great news story here, so we got to roll up our news music here. Uh, Granger Community Church, remember Granger? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, they just had the Innovate 08 conference, and they've got press here in the uh, Christian Post, and the headline reads Innovate 08 urges churches to start, stop talking and start doing. Now, just for some context here, I want you to remember who it is that we're talking about here that's doing the, uh, is basically telling the church to get busy, stop talking, and start doing. This is the church who, after they did their Reveal Now study, discovered that 47% of the people in their own church do not believe in salvation by grace. No, they're not children. These are, uh, these are apparently adults. Uh, 47% of the people who attend Granger Community Church don't believe in salvation by grace. That means that almost half the people in their congregation are not Christians, even if they say they are. Yeah, they could be. Now, here we go. 57% of those attending Granger do not believe in the authority of the Bible. 57%. Yeah, maybe they believe in Zeus, the Bahadva Gita, the Book of Mormon. Maybe they had a liver shiver about some spiritual thing that Madonna said regarding the Kabbalah. Uh, 57, 56% of the people attending Granger Community Church do not believe that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. So this church, okay, I'm sorry, the, the leadership team for Granger Community Church, I have a word that describes them. It's called failures, okay? These men have no right telling the Christian church anything anymore. They're not doing their jobs as pastors, They're not making disciples. They're entertaining people. And yet they have, you know, remember, this is the sixth most influential church. 
in Christianity, in America, the sixth most influential, one of the premier purpose-driven churches, they just had their Innovate 08 conference, Innovate. Yeah, that's the thing. All of these guys have these conferences, Innovate, Rethink, Evolve. You know, it's ridiculous. We've got to get back to stay put, stand firm, and stand on the scriptures. Don't move. We don't need to innovate. We don't need to evolve. We don't need to do any of this rethinking stuff. We need to stay faithful to the scriptures as delivered, once for all delivered to the saints, and stop with this toying around with trying to come up with flashy ways of trying to make uh, the gospel relevant. Because scripture already tells us that the gospel is foolishness to Greek and a stumbling block to Jews. By nature, we're not going to be hit with this gospel thing. So there's no way to make it relevant, so just preach it. Anyway, <clears throat> the leadership of uh, Granger Community Church, also known as Failures, are admonishing us, you know, the rest of the church, to stop talking and start doing. I, 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 I've got to tell you, I'm offended that they would be telling me to do anything. I, I, I'm serious, okay? The, uh, anyway, here we go. From the Christian Post from September 22nd. It's time to pop the church bubble many Christians are in. Some have been in the bubble so long that they have disengaged from the world, said Mark Beeson of Granger Community Church. Meanwhile, the world is waiting for Christians to stop talking and start doing something to engage the world. People want something to happen now, but what the church presents must be done in context, Beeson said. Beeson was speaking at the Innovate 2008, an annual conference hosted at his church in Granger, Indiana. Over the weekend, this year's conference theme was Stop Talking and Start Doing. You know, Granger, Mark Beeson, uh, I'm sorry, but the stats coming in here is that you guys are doing too much doing and not enough talking. It, you, you've got it 180 degrees wrong. You guys should just quit with all this garbage that you're doing in the name of entertaining and making things relevant and get back to talking. What did Luther call the church? He called it a blab house. This is where we hear the words of God. So I'm sorry, Mark Beeson, but you've got it wrong. We don't need to stop talking and start doing. We've already looked at the results of your method of doing church, and it doesn't produce Christians. It doesn't make disciples. So, therefore, you guys need to stop doing and start talking. Here we go. <clears throat> Granger's senior pastor was one of several speakers who are part of some of the most innovative churches in the country, all of whom challenged conference attendees to start doing for the purpose of transforming lives. Well, Oprah transforms lives, doesn't she? I mean, I've seen television shows where they have those extreme makeovers. You, you got the lady, you know, you, you got the... The frumpy mom who still has a, a beehive hairdo from the you know late 60s, early 70s, and she's had it for all of her life. It's 2008 now. It's time to get a new hairdo. And so they bring her in, and they do a complete makeover, and they transform her lives. Is that what Christianity is about, is transforming lives? Yep. The Apostle Paul's uh, life was transformed. Imagine all the times that he got stoned and persecuted, nearly killed for the Christian faith. His life was definitely transformed. Is that the kind of transformation they're talking about? Okay. <clears throat> yeah, you, 
Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, the guy, the thief on the cross, you know, the guy who confesses Christ and Jesus says, you'll be with me today in paradise. His life was transformed. He went from breathing to not breathing. That's life transformation if I've ever seen it. Anyway, all right, let's continue. <clears throat> okay, so this is Mark Beeson uh, talking. He says, quote, most churches in America are not getting the job done. I, you know, okay, I'm... Throwing down here, I'm mad. Mark Beeson, you have absolutely no authority whatsoever to sit there and point your bony little finger at the rest of the churches in America and say they're not getting the job done. How dare you? I'm serious. Let me remind you again of the miserable results that came back as a result of your Reveal Now study. 47% of the people at your church don't believe in salvation by grace. Are you getting the job done, Mark? 57% of the people at your church don't believe in the authority of the Bible. Are you getting the job done, Pastor Beeson? 56% of those attending Granger do not believe Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Are you getting the job done? Pastor Mark Beeson, I cannot believe the audacity and the arrogance of you telling other people, other churches that they're not getting the job done. When we have qualitative evidence that your methods of doing church and your innovation is a bunch of garbage and it doesn't work. It doesn't actually produce results. How dare you? Yeah. Yeah. This is evidence he supplied. This is self-damning evidence. Let me quote this again. Pastor Mark Beeson at the Innovate 08 conference says, quote, most churches in America are not getting the job done. Uh, yours definitely isn't, Pastor. Yet the de-churched... Oh, now, there's a new word. Okay, it used to be really simple. You were either a believer, you trusted in Christ, or you were an unbeliever, you you didn't trust in Christ. It's it, real simple categories. Now we have the unchurched, unbelievers, and now there's a new thing, the de-churched. Yet the de-churched and the unchurched make up most of the people in our communities. Yeah, that the reason why is because you guys aren't preaching Christ and him crucified and you guys are doing this ridiculous thing. I recommend Julia Dewan's book on quitting church, the de-churched. Most churches in America aren't getting the job done, yet the de-churched and the unchurched make up most of the people in our communities, said Tim Stevens, executive pastor at Granger, who believes that the church isn't doing a good job reaching beyond the churched. Okay, <clears throat> church is when the believers gather together to receive God's word, the forgiveness of sins, and sacraments. It's not for unbelievers. Church isn't for unbelievers. Outreach to unbelievers is called evangelism. You keep the two separate. You don't mix them. Church is not evangelism. (sighs) Stevens is the author of Pop Goes the Church, Should the Church Engage Pop Culture, which was released earlier this year. In the book, he describes the need to leverage culture to meet people where they are. Yeah, we need to leverage culture. Apparently, we need to leverage culture in order to get really miserable results, because that's what happens. You know, absolutely done with these guys and their arrogance. You know what the second chapter of that book is, is or is it actually technically the first? I'd have to look. It's called Molly, Your Church Sucks. Sorry if that offends you guys. That's actually uh, the name of a chapter from Tim Stevens' Pop Goes the Church. Molly, your church sucks. Isn't that great? (sighs) 
situation? I don't know, but, you know, a, a, a church that sucks is one where, you know, they might have wooden and uncomfortable pews, and they've got an organ, and they play the dirgy, sour, dour hymns with, with like, more than seven words, you know. They, they There's, like, six or seven verses, and each verse is, is like, five or six lines long. It, it uses words like glory and justification and sin i'm sorry nobody not one member of the of the staff at granger community church has any authority whatsoever to say to any other church they're not doing their jobs give me a break innovate 08 all right we're gonna dive into the Continuing postcard controversy, and I've received I, – I can't even keep up with the emails anymore. <laughs> I just want to let you guys know I've got a little bit of a backlog of listener emails, and there's some uh, there's some complaints that have been coming in regarding different things that I've said on the show. I'll address those uh, either tomorrow or Thursday you know, as soon as I get an opportunity to get to them. Uh, somebody took issue with uh, my breast milk analogy. <laughs> And actually, she was right. She made a good point. And so, and then somebody took issue with the fact that uh, I, I said the word retarded. I did. You know, I said something was retarded. And, you know, I might as well get that one out of the way. And uh, plain and simple, I said the word retarded about something. And she was offended because she has a child with Down syndrome. And that's just a, it, it's a derogatory term. And you know what? I apologize for using the word retarded person. So... I repent of retarded. It's not a it's not a good word to use. All right. Let me um let me dive into the postcard controversy here. And um she says uh this is not she. This is Jack uh, from Rochester, Minnesota. He said I wanted to express my support for you in the postcard debate. My testimony is one that shows how harmful unbiblical leadership can be. You see, when I was in junior high, I attended a church with my family where the pastor felt it was more important to be relevant than it was to express support for those of us who were members of the church. Unfortunately, this was also characterized by scripture twisting to fit what they felt was needed. The result was two actions that affected my spiritual growth for years. The first action was uh, personal, as during these years, many people tended to label me as effeminate. Due to the fact that I could not gain weight, no matter what I did, I stood at six foot and weighed about 110, 115 pounds at the time. This was hard to deal with, and it, and I turned to the youth group as a place of safety from these comments. That ended during a retreat when the pastor pulled me aside and said that I could not play football because I was too effeminate. Could not play football because I was too effeminate. What? Where does somebody get off doing something like that? All right, so we we continue. His exact words, which rang in my ears, were, your body is to be God's temple, and you're not building it up as such. You have, you've got to be kidding me. Ay, ay, ay. Um... He used 1 Corinthians 6:19 as his point, and unfortunately, I and, and as and unfortunately, I had not accepted Christ at that time, so I quickly believed that what he was saying must be true. I believed God could not accept my physical appearance either, and due to the shame, did not tell my parents about the confrontation until years later. 
It was not until after I was saved that I realized that the verse was taking, talking about how sin should not enter a temple, so we should treat our bodies the same and had nothing to do with outward appearances. In the pastor's defense, I think he actually believed he was encouraging me to build up my body uh, uh, biblically, and unfortunately, I never got a chance to express how damaging the words were. Yeah, let's see. Law-based, biblical principle-based, not understanding scripture in context-based, you know, you, you can really make some hurtful comments. I mean, God doesn't care if you're six foot and 110 pounds. I mean, yeah, that's scarily, you know, skinny. But I, from the other end of the spectrum, as short and fat, I kind of look at that and go, man, I wish I had that problem. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Our bodies are broken. They don't work right. Anyway, the second action was uh, that the pastor allowed the youth to pick movies to watch in the church in order to be irrelevant. The first movie was MASH, and the second was Halloween. Oh, those are good movies to watch at church. Oh, man. I, I wonder if they preached a sermon on you know d Digging into the spiritual principles of MASH. And Halloween, you know, that Halloween movie is chock full of biblical principles. You, I, you just need to learn how to look for them. Again, being unsaved, I went to the youth and thinking that this was cool initially. My father took a strong stand against it, though. Yeah, d dads are just irrelevant. Uh, this was around the same time as the confrontation I had with the pastor, so I pretty quickly understood my father's side a bit more. However, word got out to the church that my family had decided to be divisive. <laughs> And we were forced to search for a new church. It was not indicated that it was because we were making biblical stands. Well, see, that's the thing. Um, I, I've personally experienced this myself. Um, if if you actually are in one of these churches where they're not preaching the word correctly and you have the audacity to say to the pastor, you know, that's not what the Bible says. Uh, you, there's a good chance you might be shown the door. In fact, in my archive somewhere, I have I've kept uh, newspaper clippings of people who've taken biblical stands against their unbiblical pastors. And what? How did their pastors deal with it? They filed restraining orders against those people. You know, or what? I, I, I there's one news story where a, you know, a, a guy was literally escorted off of church property by the police because he was divisive. I, again. Let's keep this in mind. Biblically speaking, it's not the guy who um, is saying the truth. It's not the guy who's speaking the truth, biblically, who's being divisive. It's the guy who's twisting God's word who's being divisive. But see, that's the thing. He, they, they're the ones who are running the show. And um, in a lot of these purpose-driven churches, when you, uh, when you take your membership oath, um, one of the things you sign on your membership contract is is that you will you will if you have a quite a problem with what the pastors are doing you will leave, and so you sign that thing. It's like a contract, and then when uh, if you say anything against what the church is doing, they will show you the door. There was a gal uh, you remember a couple of years ago, Barack Obama spoke at the AIDS conference at uh, Saddleback Church, and um, you know that was a huge deal. I mean. W w Barack Obama, who literally supports infanticide. Okay, this this guy, you know, he he's an he's pro-abortion, pro-infanticide because if, if you know, God forbid that a, a a child who was supposed to be aborted survives the abortion, what's what's Barack Obama's solution? Kill it, let it die. Okay, um, you know, 
this this guy was invited to Saddleback Church by Rick Warren to come and talk about fighting, you know, the global pandemic of AIDS. And there was a lot of people who took issue with that. Like Barack Obama has no moral authority to come to a church and talk about the AIDS crisis when this guy is, you know, clearly doesn't even understand what human rights are. And uh, it was a big controversy at the time. Of course, you know, Rick Warren's uh, encore to that was the following year he invited uh, Hillary Clinton. You know, my my question is, who's he going to invite this year? You know, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad? You know, (laughs) that's kind of in the same vein. You know, one of these things is just like the other. Um, He he has to have an encore. He should invite, you know... Osama bin Laden. I mean, I'm sure Rick Warren could, you know, Osama bin Laden cares about the uh, the AIDS pandemic, and it doesn't matter that he's out there murdering people as a terrorist. I mean, let's, uh, you know, let's invite Osama bin Laden or Mahmoud Ahmadinejad or, uh, you know, uh, who, who's the guy who's the, uh, um, the, the president of Venezuela? You know, I can't remember his name. You know, that guy, he, he, should, he should invite him too, you know, the communist dictator in Venezuela. You know, I think – how about Fidel Castro, although Castro's not feeling well. Um, he's not doing so hot. <laughs> yeah, Rick can go see him and have the AIDS conference in Cuba. Anyway, so uh, what happened after that controversy is that there was there was one lady that I received an email from that she took a strong stand. She was a member of Saddleback. She took a strong stand against, you know, Rick Warren having uh, Barack Obama – come and speak about AIDS at Saddleback and said it was inappropriate because of his you know, human rights stand. And uh, her membership was canceled and she was shown the door. Don't you dare be divisive. Divisive is not going with uh, the leadership because, of course, everybody knows that, uh, that uh, God has spoken them directly through visions. And uh, these visions, uh, you know, they have, they've given them direct revelation for the direction of the church, and everything they do is by the hand of God, and if you go against it, you're going against God. All right, we continue. All right, so, um, all right, now the result of these two actions, I'm getting back to uh, Jack's email here. The result of these two actions was that I decided not, uh, that I did not want to be active in church any longer. I no longer felt safe in church. It was not so much seeker-friendly, it was world-friendly. Based on how the world saw me, suddenly I saw the church wanting to be part of the world more than the world wanting to be part of the church, and I did not want any part of that. My theory was that if the church believed, uh, excuse me, if the church uh, believed world acceptance was important, why did I need uh, church or hope or a savior? Why would God see me different than the world saw me? I felt very betrayed and humiliated. It took a long time to learn God loved me, not for my appearance, but because although I was a sinner, I learned that I was able to. Uh, I was also one of His lost children. He was searching to save me if I turned from sin and rest under His shelter from my troubles. After I learned that, I was able to forgive the pastor. Although sadly, I cannot forget. I cannot help but wonder how many others are out there feeling rejected by the world and then feel more rejected when they see the church attempting to be relevant to the unsaved world, but not those truly uh, seeking love while in, this, in need of a savior from their sins. I hope you did not mind my carrying on. Uh, obviously, I don't, Jack, because I read your whole email. Uh, I just wanted to provide a different perspective of the seeker-sensitive movement as it can be very dangerous for young adults who believe there is a savior but are not yet saved. If the gospel were preached at the time, I might have been uh, saved in high school instead of in my 30s. 
there's a nice indictment. How, however, I know God had a plan in, in this as my wife went through similar trials and I was able to be a participant in leading her to Christ. Keep spreading the gospel message exactly as you're doing it. I'm finding it refreshing. May God bless you and your family and your team that work with you at Pyro Christian Radio. Jack, great email. Thank you for sharing that and allowing me to share that on the air. All right, so um, that's you know that's another email that that's came, come in in support, you know, of the postcard at this point. Um, I've got another one. This one comes all the way from Jamaica. That's the nice thing about internet radio is that uh, we're not tied to any particular geographic region. And so Dave uh, David uh, from Kingston, Jamaica. He says, thank you so much for speaking out against the malnutrition of the church congregations and doing so through your postcard. Now, he says, are you aware of James White's book, Pulpit Pulpit Crimes? Actually, until you had mentioned this, uh, uh, David, I was not aware of it. It was released in 2006, and I'm surprised that it seems to have flown under the radar since it came out. I only discovered it by accident about 15 minutes ago. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Dave is now an authority. He read the book in 15 minutes. That's amazing. I'm sorry. I, as it seems to address the very issues and more you are tackling now, maybe it was deemed too crazy or controversial at the time, although to be fair, in 2006, I wasn't aware of the apostasy taking place, let alone who James White was. Anyway, please keep up the work. Here in Jamaica, um, I can see the emerging seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven apostasy happening before my eyes, but the Lord has blessed me to find a Reformed Baptist church to attend. I still need lots of work and a pastor, and I'm praying to that end. Regarding the apostasy, now this is this is an interesting one. I get a lot of emails along these lines, and I actually want to open this up. Regarding the apostasy in motion, did you ever get the uh, the surreal feeling that when you see what's going on, when you see what's going on? Do you remember in the seventies? Unfortunately, I can remember back to the seventies because I'm that old. Um, when we read uh, books like The Late Great Planet Earth, talking about the last days, when many would depart from the faith, listening to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Did you read in awe, wondering what those future days would be like? And then, bam, fast forward to 2008, and you're finding yourself right in the middle of it. Anyways, thanks for reading uh, from uh, My Two Cents Worth, as you say. Please keep on doing what you're doing, um, and keep fighting for the faith, love, and the Lord, Dave Wellington. Now, regarding the apostasy, this is, uh, this is something we've got to be careful about. No one knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. I will say this. Um, there's a couple of options regarding what's happening right now. And apostasy is the right way of describing what's happening in the church. It is a rebellion. That's what the word apostasy means. It's a rebellion against uh, the way, literally the way church has done church for, you know, since the beginning of the church and, uh, and making disciples and being in God's word. And so there's a couple of, there's a couple of options here. We're either going into a new dark age, you know, remember the dark ages, <laughs> No, personally, I don't. Now, John, now stop that. <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> um, the Dark Ages. The reason, one of the reasons why they're described as the Dark Ages is because of the superstition, the false religion, you know, that was running rampant in uh, in uh, Roman Catholic Europe at the time. You know, it's marked with monasteries, people trying to do crazy things in order to save themselves. It's a time of darkness. And what was hidden at the time? The Bible was locked up. How was it locked up? Well, it was locked up in Latin. And back in those days, uh, before the Reformation, 
you, if, you know, if you were a German or a, uh, somebody who spoke English or you spoke French, you would go to church, you would attend Mass, and the readings from the Scripture would occur in Latin. In other words, it's like going to a church where they're speaking in tongues and there's no interpreter. How useful is that? Um, so what would happen is, is you would hear the Bible in Latin and you couldn't take it out of Latin because, you know, of course, everyone knows Latin is God's language. And um, and so what happened is, is that literally the light of Scripture was completely snuffed out, covered up by uh, the fact that the, the word of God was locked up in a, in a language that most people didn't know. No, you'd have to study and be a scholar in order just to have a chance at understanding what it is the Bible readings were saying in the Mass. And, and here's the deal. And now here's the funny thing. Today, we're awash in Bibles. They're everywhere, you know. And it, it's how's that saying go? Water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. There's We're awash in Bibles, and yet, People aren't cracking them open. They're not reading them in context. They're not hearing them from the pulpits. They're not learning it. So um, all this apostasy that's taking place, it's one of two options. We're either going into a new dark age, um, you know, or a time of, gr- uh, you know, a great falling away, or this could potentially be the great apostasy. But I don't know if it's the great apostasy because I, I, I when I look forward in my day planner, I don't see any day marked out, oh, this is the day the Lord returns. Now, I understand that the Mayan calendar ends in, two, in 2012, okay? But the last time I checked, the Mayans were not Christians, and Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. So here's the deal. What are we to do as Christians? We're to contend earnestly for the faith, all right? In other words, that means we're going to have to fight this growing current apostasy as if the world's going to be around for the next 10,000 years. Why? Because the next generation of the church depends upon us proclaiming Christ and him crucified. I'm sorry, but we've got to, we've, we're in the middle of a battle. And if you didn't realize that we're in the middle of a battle, in the middle of a war, um, and you haven't suited up and haven't put on your armor and, and gotten engaged in the battle, um, I hate to break it to you, but hey, there's a battle waging, literally being waged right around you. Put your armor on and get in. Get in the fight. You know, we're losing churches left and right, and you know what? I'm I'm not 100% convinced this is the great apostasy. So rather than sitting on the sidelines and going, oh, woe is me. Isn't it terrible? We're losing all these churches. Oh, but nothing I can do. I'm just so powerless. Uh, no, you're not. Suit up. Get in the battle. Let's go. Let's fight. This thing is not over yet. Christ hasn't returned. It's not over until the trumpet sounds, okay? So I uh, just wanted to <clears throat> put that little thing in there. So, but it, could this is this the great apostasy? Now, this is hilarious. Um, a couple weeks ago, I had, uh, you know, I was at a networking event for the White Horse Inn people and had a chance to meet Ken Riddlebarger. And this is a guy who wrote a book called The Man of Sin, and uh, he also wrote a book uh, defending millennialism. And, you know, he was talking about the uh, the website a little leaven. <laughs> and I just glibly said, yeah, if I said just further proof, you know, that we, we may be in the great apostasy. And this guy's not millennialist. And, you know, and he's not one to put dates and stuff. Like that. He looks at me and goes, well, we could be. <laughs> <laughs> so he got this wonderful tension. We, it, Hey, this could be the, the great apostasy. But, you know, I'm sorry, but we've got to live like it isn't. Fight like it's not. I think we can turn this thing around. You know, let's, so let's. Since we don't know the day or hour, let's fight like we can actually win this thing. Because the battle's not ours anyway. The battle belongs to the Lord. 
So get in the fight. Fun anyway. <laughs> okay, we're going to go into our uh, break. We will be right back. And um, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, on the other side of the break, we're going to talk more about the postcard controversy. want to give you uh, some of the relevant background information. What am I talking about when I'm talking about p- pastors who are not feeding God's sheep? What exactly does that entail? What, you know, how do I envision that is? And, uh, and so we'll, we'll, we'll cover that at the, at, uh, on, the next, on the other side of the break. Um, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. I'm Chris Rosebro. If you'd like to email me, you can. You can complain about anything. And uh, if you're right, I'll tell you you're right. <laughs> and if you're wrong, well, yeah, that too. <laughs> Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, and we'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn Radio Program including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. back this is fighting for the faith i'm chris roseborough we're in the middle of a discussion regarding the postcard controversy is your pastor starving you to death spiritually he's not supposed to and we're going to dive into the scripture text regarding that so uh get your bibles out you're going to need them now, before we uh, dive into scripture, I want to give you a little bit of context here. What am I talking about when, regarding you know these pastors who are not preaching God's word, who are not doing, who refuse to feed their sheep? Well, let me give you an example of one, and this guy's name is Stephen Furtick. I played this quote before, but I want you to hear it again in this context. Stephen Furtick is a disciple of Rick Warren and a guy by the name of Perry Noble. And I'll read to you something from Rick Warren's book, uh, The Purpose Driven Church, too. And so let me, I'm just going to play some quotes here so you can kind of get an idea of what it is that we're talking about here. So uh, this, uh, this is from uh, a sermon preached by Pastor Stephen Furtick, and uh, you know, Confessions of a Pastor was the name of it. And uh, let's see how he treats those people who want to uh, be fed God's word at his church. So. When you showed up to church this morning, did you show up with a bless me, feed me, make me fatter preacher? I don't intend to do a thing you say, but I'm going to listen to you. And if you dadgum say one thing I don't like, I promise I'll cross my arms and cross my eyes at you the rest of the sermon. Did you show up to file a little bit more religious information in your already overloaded hard drive so that you could do absolutely nothing about it? The church is full of 
pot-bellied Christians waiting to shove their spiritual food down their mouth one more time, but they don't intend to do anything to bless anybody. You are a Pharisee. You sit on the front row. You might even take notes, but you take notes so you can argue with them with your roommate after church and how I don't really believe in all that. Yeah, but if we ever start turning in this front row Pharisee crowd, I don't think the teaching's deep enough. I would like a little more hermeneutical explanation on the original languages in the Aramaic and the Hebrew. Jesus says, shut up. Help somebody. Bless somebody. Heal somebody. Serve somebody. Pray. Every time I hear that, I, I gotta say, no, Jesus never said that, Pastor Furtick. Show me one passage that says that. You are lying. For somebody. Why don't you do something? Why don't you bring a lost friend to church with you next week? Watch Jesus change their life. And then you won't be worried about how loud the music was. You'll just hope that they meet Jesus. That'll be the only thing you can think about. It'll how are they supposed to meet Jesus at this church if he isn't preaching Christ? It'll consume you. But some people say, I wish you wouldn't preach all these topical sermons. I wish you'd just preach verse by verse through the book of Galatians so that we can understand the full propitiation of the justification by faith. No, here's what you want to do. You want to pull your fat butt up to the table and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. And some of y'all even double dip because you go to three churches, you don't serve at any, and you're fat and you need to get on a treadmill and do something for Jesus. I promise the encouraging part is coming. And I'm not normally this mean, but it's, it's my wife's out of town and I got to take it out on somebody. <clears throat> so Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Jesus is always calling up to the front the people that religion pushes to the back of the bus. Read through the Gospels. Jesus does not give the place of honor to the seminary graduates. He's attacking people who are trained to properly handle God's word. What seminary did you go to, Pastor Furtick? Oh, you didn't. Oh, that makes sense. He calls out the prostitute, says, follow me. Ask the fishermen who became his disciples. They did not have their rabbinical degrees. They were not. Yeah, they, but they spent three years with Jesus. I think that counts as the best seminary in the world. Not from the highest pedigree in Jerusalem. They were business owners. Jesus said, you follow me. I'm See what's under attack here? Anybody who wants to be fed the word of God in context and understand what God's word means instead of these proof texted sermons, he calls them topical. Topical sermons are like topical creams. They can only help the surface. Make you a fisher of men. Ask David. He was tending sheep. The prophet Samuel comes to anoint the king of Israel. He knew that it was one of Jesse's sons. Nobody even thought about David in that moment. He was just a sheep tender, the youngest one. Surely it can't be David. Oh, yeah, it's David. Because Jesus has the habit of calling out the one that everybody else has overlooked. I want Elevation Church to be a church for the overlooked, for the unloved. Uh, but church is, uh, you're a pastor. Your job is to feed God's sheep, the sheep that Christ put into your care. Why would you neglect them to get to the overlooked? Not for us to have as many different Varieties of Bible studies. We got Beth Moore and Kay Arthur and Joyce Meyer. No. no, no Bible studies. You know, what we got we got Jesus. We preach him. We preach so that people can come to faith in Christ and we want them to get in a small group and serve so that other people can meet Christ. If you know Jesus, I am sorry to break it to you. This church is not for you. Yeah, but I just gave my life to Christ last week at Elevation. Last week was the last week. That Elevation Church existed for you. You're in the army now. We do one thing. 
We preach Jesus so people far from God can know Jesus. And then we train them up so that others can know Jesus. But we do it without Bible study. We do it without me feeding you God's word. How can you be in the army and not be fed? I mean, don't soldiers require food? Anyway, that's Stephen Furtick. Now, that's kind of lower down in the branches. Let's go to some of the thought leaders now. This is uh, Bill Hybels uh, talking about the results of the Reveal Now study for Willow Creek and the solution he came up with. So, but that survey just rocked my world. It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to digest as a leader because some of the stuff that we have put millions of dollars in thinking it would really help our people grow and develop spiritually when the data actually came back it wasn't helping people that much other things that we didn't put much money into and didn't put much much staff against is stuff that our people are crying out for it was crazy making let me show you just (laughs) you mean the seeker sensitive theory that you have is wrong? Very briefly, one little part of our discovery uh, in this survey that Greg did, and again, there's just tons of discoveries, but this is one little one. Um, here's a, a kind of a continuum, and uh, here's a cross, and here are people who are pre-Christian, but who are figuring out Christianity in the context of Willow Creek Community Church. Seekers, investigators, okay? That's here. These are people who are just across the line, like beginning Christians. He's put a cross up there, and so on the one side of the, on the left side of the cross are people who are not saved, and then on the other side of the cross are the, the new Christians, and this is the spiritual growth continuum that uh, Willow Creek created. These are growing Christians, and then these are people who are fully devoted followers of Christ as they self-describe, Okay. Now, we asked one question, which was, uh, how, how helpful is Willow Creek Church being to you? In, how much help are they being to you in these various areas, when you're in these, areas, uh, in these stages of your life? Okay, so if this would be like 10, we're, you know, Willow's really doing well. For our pre-Christians, remarkably, and this was like good news, they were giving us like nines going... I'm investigating Christianity. I come to this church. I love the services. I love what's offered to me, the resources. I like how the truth of Christianity is made relevant to me, so in a way I can understand it, rated us very high. Even the new Christians, it came down a little bit, but not that much. They were like, man, you helped me get in a group. You helped me with this. You helped me with that. It was all pretty cool. All right, then we get to growing Christians, and the scores start going down. And then we get to fully devoted followers of Christ, and the scores got scarily low. Because they're starving to death. I was like, that bothers me. That really bothers me. Like, like, we're not helping them that much. So I said, why don't we do some focus groups, find out what's really going on? And they said, Bill, we did that. Let's do some focus groups. Okay, just want to point something out here. If uh, if you are in a church of a couple of hundred people and you got one or two pastors, you don't need to conduct a focus group. Your pastor knows you by name. 
talks with you, cares for you, more than just gives you God's word. He's involved in your life. You don't need to conduct a focus group. He could tell by your body language that maybe something isn't right, and he can address it right there on the spot. But see, it's all about numbers. We have to, you know, we have to show up in the top 100 churches, you know, that have the tens and thousands of people who are attending on a Sunday. And if things are going wrong with that many people, what do you do? You conduct a focus group. You ever thought of pastoring these people instead of being their CEO? All right, you're going to tell me about that too? Like, yep, put the gun away. It's all right. So they said, you know, a lot of people in this category, they're saying they're not being fed. Oh, they're just selfish. That's their problem because they expect to come to church and be fed the word of God. That they want more. Church doesn't exist for them. Meat of the word of God. They want more serious minded scripture taught to them. They want to be challenged more and so. And I was like, it's hard for me to hear. We give messages on weekends. We give extremely challenging messages at our midweek service. We're one of the only churches in the United States that has a midweek service, a full-blown Bible teaching session in addition to what we do on weekends. We have small groups. We have classes. We have all this stuff. And I started getting a little irritated. I was like, I'll feed those people. I'll hire some old... He's irritated. I think he's he's talking jokingly here, but I think this is telling me something about what he really thinks. I'll hire some old seminary prof. I'll feed him till they barf. You know? So yeah, well, um, they're starving to death right now. So you know. You should see me in my finer moments. So anyway, they said, "Hey, Bill, that's really not." That's, that's sort of the presenting thing they're saying. We think we know what's really going on. So Greg Hawkins again. Okay, they, they think they know what's going on based on their focus groups. Notice we haven't gone into God's word and said, you know what, maybe we missed something here. Maybe God's word is going to give us a clue as to what the job of a pastor really is. But let's continue. And just brilliant guy. He goes, Bill, we've made a mistake. What we should. Okay, we've made a mistake. Is the mistake going to be, you know what, pastors are supposed to feed God's sheep God's word. We've got to repent. This whole seeker-sensitive thing is wrong. No, 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 no. Watch. I mean, listen. What should have done at about this point, when people cross the line of faith, become Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. I, I don't think I need to play anymore. That's pretty much the point that he's going to go with and explain and defend that concept. Can you point out a single passage of Scripture that says, you know, pastors, don't feed your sheep. Teach them how to become self-feeders. Any? 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 Now, uh, nothing, you know, I couldn't possibly have a Fighting for the Faith program without mentioning Rick Warren at least once because everybody knows that I'm supremely jealous of him and his success. No, I'm not. Uh, from the book, The Purpose Driven Church, uh, the chapter called Worship Can Be a Witness. Worship Can Be a Witness, uh, pages 248 and 249. Let me read. Okay. Rick Warren speaking. It takes unselfish, mature believers to offer a seeker-sensitive service. 
Stop for a second and let that sink in. It takes unselfish, mature believers to offer a seeker-sensitive service. Um, he's going to quote a Bible verse here, and we're going to look at it because he he says that this is in the Bible. Okay, here. So let me read this. It takes unselfish, mature believers to offer a seeker-sensitive service. In First Corinthians fourteen nineteen through twenty, Paul says that when we think only of our own needs in worship, we're being childish and immature. Members demonstrate incredible spiritual maturity when they are considerate of the needs, fears, and hang-ups of unbelievers and are willing to place those needs before their own in a church service. In every church, there's a constant tension between the concept of service and serve us. Most churches end up tipping the scale towards meeting members' needs because the members pay the bills. Oh, Offering a seeker-sensitive service means intentionally tipping the scales in the opposite direction towards unbelievers. It requires members who are willing to create a safe environment for unbelievers at the expense of their own preferences, traditions, and comforts. Enormous spiritual maturity is required to voluntarily move out of a comfort zone. Jesus said, Your attitude must be like my own, for I, the Messiah, did not come to be served, but to serve. Until this attitude of unselfish servanthood permeates the minds and hearts of your members, your church is not ready to begin a seeker-sensitive service. Let me translate that for you. If you have a church where your pastor is feeding the believers there God's word and his sacraments, and you know doing that irrelevant stuff of walking through passages of scripture, reading the gospel lessons, preaching about God and what Christ has done, you're just selfish. You are selfish because according to Rick Warren, 1 Corinthians 14, 19 through 20, uh, the Apostle Paul says that when we think only of our own needs in worship, we're being childish and immature. Let me read that passage for you, by the way, uh, because, you know, I'd like to see if Paul was talking here about offering a seeker-sensitive service. Is that the context here? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 19 through 20. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in, in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written by, my, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And, every, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. The context of this passage in context is talking about tongues and the abuse of the spiritual gift of tongues. Let me read it. Let me back it up. Okay, this is, this is not about seeker sensitive services. This is not about, you know, be thinking about the needs of the unbelievers in the sense of we've got to give them a church service that 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 that, uh, that doesn't doesn't attack them with this concept of sin and and suffering and and Christ's death and his resurrection. The context is in a church, they're abusing the gift of tongues. Let me read it in context. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? 
For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. After hearing that, let me read again what Rick Warren says in The Purpose Driven Church. It takes unselfish, mature believers to offer a seeker-sensitive service. In 1 Corinthians 14, 19-20, Paul says that when we think only of our own needs in worship, we are being childish and immature. Members demonstrate incredible spiritual maturity when they are considerate of the needs, fears, and hang-ups of unbelievers and are willing to place those needs before their own in a service. In other words... You're being mature and unselfish. If you would just put away this 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 thing of that you have, this idea of you being fed God's word on a Sunday morning service, we need to be thinking about the needs of the unbelievers. We need to craft a service that's that's relevant to them. And you're mature if you do that. And if you don't do it, you're childish and immature. See the categories he's operating here? And he's twisted God's word in order to do it. It's a lie from the pit of hell. <clears throat> now, we're going to spend a little time in Scripture. I told you to get out your Bibles. Get them out. It's time to go into God's Word. You guys ready for this? Um, a couple of things we could talk about here. But uh, we'll, we'll go with a straightforward approach. We'll do this in a kind of a, uh, of a Bible verse question way of doing it. In fact, what we what we should call this is the um, Feed God's Sheep Bible Study. You guys ready for the Feed God's Sheep Bible Study? I am. Let's dive into the Feed God's Sheep Bible Study. All right. Our first passage today is the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 17. Uh, this is really verse 17. <laughs> Here's what it says. Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, let me give you some context so you know what's going on. Peter's denied Christ three times. Christ is risen from the dead. Peter's been to the tomb and they've seen that it's empty. And he runs into Jesus. I think this is near the Sea of Galilee at this point. And Jesus is restoring Peter at this point for the sin of denying Christ. Okay? And so Jesus says to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was grieved because Jesus had said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. John 21, verse 17. So here's our here's our application questions. What did Jesus mean when he told Peter to feed his sheep? What did Jesus mean when he told Peter to feed his sheep? You should discuss this in your small group. Was that just a command for Peter to follow? Or do you think that Jesus is still concerned about having his feet, sheep fed? Was When Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep, was that just a command for Peter? Or do you think that it is still important to Jesus that his sheep are fed? What do you think? Well, kind of seems kind of silly if Jesus only wants Peter to feed his sheep and is, you know, on an ongoing basis, feeding sheep is not really something that's concerning Jesus. 
All right, here's our next verse. Matthew 4, 4. Now, let me give you the context for Matthew 4, 4 real quick. Matthew 4, 4, the devil is tempting Jesus in the wilderness, okay? Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, right? And uh, Jesus is, actually, this is a wonderful picture of Jesus being the true Israel. He's in the wilderness being tempted for 40 days, just like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years before they came into the promised land. It's a beautiful picture that Matthew is showing us here. And um, the devil has just basically challenged Jesus, you know, that, you know, this whole fasting thing. Jesus, come on, give it up. You know, the Bible says that you can turn you know, stones into bread. Come on, Jesus. Do it. Show us a little miraculous muscle here. And so Jesus responds to the devil in Matthew 4. 4. He says, it is written, a man shall not live by bread alone quoting the Torah here, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus said, a man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here's our question. How do you think this verse, Matthew 4, 4, about man not living by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Notice it says every word too, not just some words, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Um, how do you think this verse relates to Jesus' instruction to Peter to feed his sheep? Are the two related? Peter, feed my sheep. Well, Lord, I don't have any bread. Was Jesus talking about bread? Or was he referring to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? The thing that God says that we don't live by bread alone, but by God's word. <clears throat> Just a few questions here. How about Matthew twenty-eight sixteen? Now the eleven disciples went into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped Jesus, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is the Great Commission, right? Matthew twenty-eight, sixteen through twenty. The Great Commission. Okay. Go into all nations making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus, in Matthew 28, says to go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So here's here's our study question for this. What percentage of Jesus's teaching does all encompass? What percentage? A, 100%. B, 75%. Or C, we don't need all of it. We just need the principles that Jesus taught. Huh? What percentage of Jesus' teaching does all encompass? Oh, I'm being so narrow-minded. I'm being judgmental. We don't need expository teaching. There's other ways to do it, Chris. We don't need all of it. We just need the principles. Just get to the bottom line. Dig out the moral thing. Mm-hmm. All right, now here's an interesting one. Um, Acts chapter 2, 42. I recommend you go back into your scriptures and read this in context, You know, because I'm not trying to twist here. Um, we read about how in, at the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches this amazing sermon. Okay, and he tells the people that they killed 
you know, they killed Christ. And they were cut to the quick, you know. Literally just, their hearts were just like, what do we do? What, what, what do you do? And Peter, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Right? So uh, that's what Peter says. And then what happens is is that, uh, you know, in describing the church, there, there were like, what, 3,000 who who God gave faith to that day? And, the, you know, and so they, they met together as a church. And here's what it says. Acts 2.42, in speaking about the early church that met in Jerusalem, it states, And they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Little side question here. Um, when, they, uh, when the people were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching... What do you think the disciples were teaching about? Do you think that they were actually obeying Jesus when Jesus had said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you? There's that pesky word again, all, all that I, all that I've commanded you. Or do you think the disciples were just digging out uh, the the biblical principles that Jesus taught? Now, I'm not trying to be snarky here. Uh, by the way, historical note here, the gospel of Mark Everyone in church history, the church, you know, the early church agrees that the gospel of Mark were the preaching notes of the apostle Peter. The gospel of Mark were the preaching notes of the apostle Peter. In other words, you want to know what Peter taught about? Read the gospel of Mark. Was he just preaching principles or was he actually telling the whole story? <clears throat> All right, now here, here's our next Bible study question here from Acts 2.42. Remember the verse says, and they of the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Um, the word devote is a very interesting word here. Um, what does it mean to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching? Devote. Now here's a hint. The Greek word that is translated devote is proskartareo. Proskartareo. Now that word literally means attach oneself to or to persist in. Now, do you think that devotion and persistence in the teaching of the apostles is something that doesn't apply to Christians today? Or should it still be a mark of the Christian church today? Why or why not? Devotion to the apostles' teaching. Should Christians still be doing that today? Why or why not? And if you don't think that Christians are, it's necessary for them to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, you need to give me a biblical verse that says that. When did we get out of it just because it happened 2,000 years ago and it's not relevant anymore? Okay. All right. Continuing with our Feed God's Sheep Bible study, complete with Bible study questions. See, the, I should type this up. <laughs> In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through chapter 4, verse 4, that's our text here, the Apostle Paul writes to young Pastor Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Oh, man, see, this, even this young pastor from childhood was acquainted with the sacred writings, <clears throat> also known as Scripture which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture. What percentage of what percentage of scripture is all scripture? Is it 100%? 75%? Or just give us the principles. 
All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Well, there's a guilt trip. I charge you in the presence of God, knowing that Jesus Christ is return is going to return and is appearing kingdom to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching for a time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul also instructed Timothy to, quote, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. This is found in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Okay, so in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says to young Pastor Timothy to preach the word. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, he says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Okay, now... Was Pastor Timothy, these are our study questions here, was Pastor Timothy the only pastor who should preach the word and the only pastor who should devote himself to the public reading of scripture or are these admonitions normative and binding for all pastors? Now, in the epistle of Titus, the apostle Paul lays out the requirements of an overseer, also known as a pastor, in the in the church. And here is what the apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 1 verse 9. He, the overseer, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Furthermore, Paul tells Titus in Titus chapter 2 verse 1, but as for you Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? What is sound doctrine and how is teaching sound doctrine accomplished? Now, here's a hint. If you're not, what is sound doctrine and how is it accomplished? Discuss this amongst yourselves. Okay. Now, if you need a hint, go back to Acts chapter 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles preaching and teaching, Right. Sound doctrine is accomplished. Oh, go back to uh, go back to Jesus of telling them to observe all, 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 all that I've commanded you. Not some parts, bits, pieces, scraps. That's what the seeker sensitive preaching is. Scraps, scraps of Bible ripped from context to help give you moral principles that you can have a better life. All right. Coming back to here. Okay. so, uh, okay. So, anyway, I think those uh, verses clearly um, uh, do this. But let's go back to uh, Acts chapter, Second uh, Timothy chapter four, okay, where Paul says, "Preach the word." For a time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. Now, by the way, the seeker-sensitive movement and its preaching methods involved not just you proof texting particular passages that deal with particular topics you first need to go out and conduct a survey of the unchurched or now the de-churched in your area and ask them why they don't like church and what it is that they would like in a service and what they would like to hear what would be practical for them you go and conduct a survey of the unchurched and then what you do is you craft your services and your messages to meet the needs of people who aren't even christians Right. 
So um, that's what Rick Warren does. That's what Bill Heibel does. That's what these seeker-sensitive guys do. That's what the Purpose Driven Church teaches you to do. So here's our bonus question from our Bible study. The Apostle Paul warns us that a day is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. But instead, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who will suit their own passions. Here's our bonus question. If I survey unbelievers and ask them what they want to hear preached during church and then preach what they want to hear, how is that any different than itching, scratching ears and becoming a church whose teachers suit men's passions rather than preaching God's word in season and out of season? Let me ask the question again. If I survey unbelievers and ask them what they want to hear preached during church and then preach what they want to hear, how is that any different than preaching to scratch itching ears and becoming a church whose teachers suit men's passions rather than preaching God's word in season and out of season? I'm just asking questions, just asking questions. And uh, we'll end on this note here. (laughs) <laughs> this is actually a pretty big note. Are you guys familiar with what end? You know, you, uh, you familiar with the story? Is you know the the history of Israel? Israel, you know, uh, after King Solomon. By the way, Solomon, you know, really displeased God with all of the um, pagan wives that he took for himself. And uh, not only did he take pagan wives for himself, he capitulated and let them build high places and places of worship for their pagan gods and deities. And so God punished Israel by uh, uh, you know by taking Solomon's son and literally ripping the kingdom out of his hand. And so Israel was torn in two. You got the northern kingdom, which had 10 tribes, and you had the southern kingdom, which had two tribes, right? So um, so what happened is, is that Israel was ripped in half, you know, and um, the northern kingdom was literally marked with rank, rank idolatry, which ended up affecting even the southern kingdom. And when you read late in Israel's history, before the Babylonian captivity, things got so bad, okay, that the temple where that that uh, Solomon built for God in Jerusalem became like the place where every religion had its own little things going on in there. Did you know that? And in fact, things got so bad that God sent what's called a famine of the word. And they didn't even read the Bibles anymore. And there was a time in Israel's history when they were doing a renovation project in the temple that Solomon built. And whoops, they've discovered the book of the law. They hadn't read that before. I kid you not. Second Kings chapters 22 and 23 strongly recommend that you get out your Bibles and read it. But of course, I'm going to read to you some of this stuff. Okay, second Kings chapter 22, starting at verse three, I read in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord. What's the house of the Lord? It's the temple, right? Saying, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people and let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house. That is to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons and let them use it for buying timber quarried stone to repair the house, but not no accounting shall be asked from them 
for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal they deal honestly. So basically, what's happening here is there's a, there's a renovation project. You know, the temple's a few hundred years old; things are kind of falling apart. It's a little bit lackluster. They got to put some fresh paint on it. You know, replace out some wood. And so um, we read that Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I, "Hey, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord." <laughs> really? There's a book of the law? <laughs> They're doing this renovation project, and what do they find? They stumble upon the Bible. What had happened? It stopped being read, stopped being obeyed, stopped being followed. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And <laughs> they'd, uh, a Bible? Wow! We didn't know. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king. Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. So this is like an update on the building project. And then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. <laughs> really? A book? They didn't say anything. We have a book? And then Shaphan read it before the king. Read the Torah. Now, when the when the king heard the words of the book of the Torah, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahakam the son of Shaphan, and Achbor the son of uh, Mekiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. He, This is not a child we're talking about. Hilkiah is not a child. He's the king of Israel. And he's grown up not even knowing that there was a book. And he reads the book and he tears his clothes and he realizes, oh man, Israel is in deep kimchi here. This is not good. Go inquire of the Lord, for God's wrath has got to be great. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Achbor and Shaphan and Asaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Tell the men who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all of the work of their hands. Oh, there goes that idea that God, that all roads lead to God. But of course, according to Chuck Curry, I'm just proof texting when I read stuff like that. I thought this was narrative theology. <clears throat> Sorry, I had to get that snarky little comment in. Okay, because they have forsaken me, have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all of their work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent. This is important. What did the law do to king to the king here? 
it drove him to his knees, showed him the, not only the, his own personal sins, it showed him the sins of the entire nation of whom he was the king. And what did he do? He immediately went to inquire of the Lord and he was penitent. That's what the law does. He was penitent and he humbled himself. It says, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse and you have torn your clothes and you have wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes will not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Chapter 23, 2 Kings, we continue. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him, and the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. How long had it been since God's word had been read in Israel? We have a book. I didn't realize we had a book. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. And all of the people joined in that covenant. Now listen to this. You want to know how things, how bad things were? Wait till you hear what Hilkiah, the, the, the king of Israel, had to clean up. Are you ready? So the king commanded the, the, the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest. I'm sorry, the king is not Hilkiah. The king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord. Get this, all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. Things had gotten so bad in Israel that in the temple were things that were made for Baal, Asherah, and the host of heaven, which is another cult. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priest whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and all the hosts of heaven. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord. An Asherah pole inside of the temple. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside of Jerusalem to the brook at Kidron, burned it at the brook of Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord. Yeah, let me read that again. The king broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the, uh, for the Asherah. You want to know how bad things got? When, go, when God takes his word out, all things go. The temple of God literally turned into a place where there were male cult prostitutes. And he brought all the women, uh, he brought the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up 
to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Molech. He removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan, Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He pulled down and broke it into pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook of Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon the king of Israel had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Shamash, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. This king went on a cleansing rampage. And what did he cleanse? All of the false gods, false idols, the male cult prostitutes in the temple of God. Things had gotten that bad. Folks, I'm going to basically hang it out there. The church's infatuation with the world is heading us in the same direction here in America. We don't need the world's stuff in church. We need the church to proclaim Christ and him crucified and to preach the word. You want to know what happens when there's a famine of the word? All kinds of abomination and idolatry happens and false religion happens. And that's what's happening in the church today. Why? Because there are pastors who on some weird principle, in the name of twisted evangelism, don't think that they need to feed God's sheep. Yet, the scripture teaches otherwise. Anyway, we're at the end of our show today. That was Chris's soapbox rant for the day. <sighs> okay. So, um, if you would like to email me and uh, let me know the answers to your questions for the uh, Feed God Sheep Bible study that we just did here on the Fighting for the Faith program, you can do so. You can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com talk back at fightingforthefaith.com and until next time the Lord bless you <laughs>